Now we're going to be moving from a, I don't really want to blatantly just come out and kill David because that will be bad PR for the already I'm not liking Saul people, to now I don't really care, I want him to die. There's a certain point where public relations doesn't matter enough if you really want somebody dead. So it brings us to chapter 19, verse 1. And Saul told his son Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. <laughs> hey, son, go kill your best friend. But Saul's son Jonathan liked David very much. So Jonathan told David, My father Saul is trying to kill you, so be careful tomorrow morning. Find a hiding place and stay in seclusion, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. I will speak about you to my father, and when I find out what the problem is, I will let you know. Now there could be a good chance that as we keep going, Jonathan's not going to actually believe that his dad's trying to kill his friend. And part of two things could be happening here. One, his dad does kind of feel like a lot of a bipolar kind of a thing. And he could just feel like his dad is in one of those moods or, or it might be like an angry drunk of a father kind of a thing. Like when he gets irate and throws a tantrum and he could kill you and probably would kill you, but you know deep down inside his heart he doesn't really want to. It's just he's being controlled by something else in that moment. And it also could be part of it is he just probably doesn't really want to believe deep down in his heart that his dad actually could be like that. I mean, that would be a hard thing to really kind of like accept your father is that. And, but it's really hard. I mean, we can't psychoanalyze him too much with the very little we have. But sometimes it's just good to kind of see it as a real human that this stuff is not easy for people to digest when they find out about things about people. So Jonathan spoke on David's behalf to his father Saul, and he said to him, The king should not sin against his servant David, for he has not sinned against you. On the contrary, his actions have been very beneficial for you. He has risked his life when he struck down the Philistine, and Yahweh gave all of Israel a great victory. When you saw it, you were happy. So why would you go sin against innocent blood by putting David to death for no reason? Saul accepted Jonathan's advice and took an oath. As surely as Yahweh lives, he will not be put to death. Then Jonathan called David and told him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he served him as he had done formerly. So that kind of stuff convinces you, like, my dad's getting sick. I mean, they don't have psychological classifications back then for people, but they would think my dad's getting sick, and it sounds like if I can just reason with him, everything will be good. He just seems to lose his temper and say a lot of things that he doesn't mean. And we probably know people like that who lose their temper and say a lot of things they don't mean. But they say it anyways. Now, once again, there was war. So David went out to fight the Philistines, and he defeated them thoroughly, and they ran away from him. Then an evil spirit, or the spirit that does evil, from Yahweh came upon Saul, and he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. Now, this one's a little bit more scary. Before, he's sitting there, and he grabbed a spear. Now he's just hanging out, holding the spear. Like, who listens to classical music with weapons in their hands? <laughs> and he's just sitting there. So now you, you know something bad's going to happen. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to nail David to the wall with a spear, but he escaped from Saul's presence, and the spear drove into the wall, and David escaped quickly that night. So he's losing his temper, and he's trying to kill David, and so the argument for Saul's really a great guy is becoming less and less and less.
Saul sent messengers to David's house to guard it and to kill him in the morning. And then David's wife, Michael, told him, If you do not save yourself tonight, tomorrow you will be dead. So Michael lowered David through the window, and he ran away and escaped. Then Michael took a household idol and put it on the bed, and she put a quilt made of goat hair on its head, like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and then covered the idol with a garment. When Saul sent messengers to arrest David, she said, He's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, Bring him up to me on this bed so I can kill him. (laughs) Just carry the whole bed to me so I can kill him. I mean, that's the other thing, too. You're too lazy even to go to his apartment to kill him. When the messengers came, they found only the idol on the bed and the quilt made of goat's hair on its head. So Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me this way by sending the enemy away? Now he's escaped. Michael replied to Saul, He said to me, Help me get away, or else I will kill you. So she's deceiving her father here. Now, here's the thing. Where'd she get the idol? She could be living in the apartment. It sounds like she's living in the apartments of the palace. Did she go down the hall and find an idol from Saul's own possessions and bring it in? Does she have her own idol and brought it into the family? If it's part of the household, then why hasn't David said anything about it? Is David worshiping idols? I would very confidently say David is not worshiping idols. There's one thing that God abhors more than anything, and that's idolatry. And when people do worship idols, he always, always mentions it. The other thing is, it's very, 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 very unlikely that David could be called a man after God's own heart and be an idol worshiper. He is not perfect. He's really screwed up, and he's going to do some really bad things. But idolatry is like that thing that just, you, you really can't call yourself a man or a woman after God's own heart. When there's something that, I mean, in some sense, we're all idolaters and a disordered love kind of a thing and a bad priority in our lives. But a blatant, full-blown-out worshiping of something other than Yahweh is totally different. However, if this idol is a part of David's household, why has he not said anything? Why has he not commanded her to remove it? Why has he not (laughs) dealt with it? This says something. And as we keep going through David's life, we're going to find out that this probably might be more of the thing. David really desires the acceptance of the people around him. And sometimes it does change his ability to deal out justice because he'd rather have their approval more than doing the right thing. And David's really not good at tough love. And so it seems like it's very obvious, or very most likely, given his character as we keep reading, that this idol is hers, it is in his house. He is not worshiping it, yet he has not said something because he needs her acceptance. He needs her acceptance. Now, this all by itself is not enough, but this is going to be the beginning of a pattern we're going to be seeing all throughout the Bible. Probably the only good thing an idol has ever done in the entire history of the Bible is help David get away. But that's not a justification for idols. <laughs> There's also mannequins now, so you don't need them. Notice that Saul calls him an enemy. You've helped an enemy escape today. That's the way he views it. Verse 18. Now David had run away and escaped, and he went to Samuel and Ramah. Ramah is right there. He goes to Ramah because that's the home of Samuel. And he told him everything that Saul had done to him. And I can just see Samuel sitting there like, I told you so. I told all you Israelites, but you would not listen to me. 
I just always imagine him sitting in a chair by the fire smoking a pipe as David's talking to him. <laughs> then he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. It was reported to Saul saying David is in um, Naoth and Ramah. And so Saul sent messengers to capture David. And when they saw a company of prophets prophesying with Samuel, standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's messengers and they also prophesied. When it was reported to Saul, he sent more messengers, but they prophesied too. So Saul sent messengers a third time, but they also prophesied. Finally, Saul himself went to Ramah, and when he arrived, the large cistern that was in Saku, he asked, Where is Samuel? And David said, Where is Samuel and David? And they said, In Naoth and Ramah. So Saul went to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him as well and walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth and Ramah and even stripped him of his clothes, prophesied before Samuel, lay there naked all the day and night. For that reason his ass is saw also among the prophets. The Spirit of God came upon him and basically humiliated him. Now that doesn't mean every single time you see people getting out of control and it's supposedly I'm under the influence of the Holy Spirit that it's actually legit. Because God is actually using this to defeat Saul's or to frustrate his plans. There is fruit that is being produced from this crazy prophesying, so to speak. And so he prophesied. Now, we also are not told that he went into a frantic frenzy. There's no evidence that he's going into a frantic frenzy, just that he's being distracted with his sense of prophesying. But he is being stripped down naked. But at the same time, he's not like flopping around on the ground either. But the idea is that God is basically stripping him naked before Samuel and basically humiliating him and showing him what he, for what he really is, kind of. Now, this would have been incredibly humiliating. I mean, even today we find this very humiliating. But in the ancient world, like, even the men would not even show their ankles. That was considered sexually scandalous. To be completely stripped down naked in public would have been humiliating. And God is frustrating his plans but at this point, David knows he's not safe from Ramah, and so he escapes, and he leaves. Chapter 20, verse 1, David fled from Naoth and Ramah, and he came to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my offense? How have I sinned before your father? For he is seeking my life. And Jonathan said to him, By no means are you going to die. My father does nothing large or small without making you aware of it. Why would my father hide this matter from me? Just won't happen. Jonathan is a part of his dad's cabinet. And he is a part of the decision making. And Jonathan just went to his dad. He reasoned with his father. And his father admitted that Jonathan's logic was sound and um, reasonable. And then he took an oath swearing that he would never kill David. Now, how seriously does Saul take oaths? When Jonathan broke Saul's oath about eating honey that Jonathan didn't even know about it, Saul was so committed to keep his oath that he was willing to kill his own son. So Jonathan's probably thinking, my dad takes oath seriously. And it didn't seem very hard to reason with my dad and convince him not to kill David. And this was only like, I don't know, a couple weeks ago. Why would this all of a sudden change so quickly? And I'm his right-hand advisor and he doesn't do anything without consulting me or talking to him, and I don't know anything about this. And the sad part about this is Jonathan is now completely in the dark. He feels like he's been close to his father, and now he's realizing, he's going to realize, that he has no place with his father anymore. 
And so he defends his father. Taking an oath, David again said, Your father is very much aware of the fact that I have found favor with you, and that he has thought, Don't let Jonathan know about this, or he will be upset. But as surely as Yahweh lives and you live, there's about, he is about one step between me and death. Jonathan replied to David, Tell me what I can do for you. David said to Jonathan, Tomorrow is the new moon, and I am certainly expected to join the king for a meal, because David is a part of the household now. He's expected, so think of this as going home for the holidays. And he's married into the family of Saul now. He's expected to be there. Now, New Moon Festival is that they would have a little celebration, almost like a Sabbath celebration, for the beginning of every month. Their months are based on the moon, kind of like ours is, but a little bit more strict. And the New Moon would come, and they would have a festival. Now, this one's actually going to be more than a day long, so it might have been matched up exactly with a Sabbath, too, that it's more than one day lasting, because typically it wasn't. So he says, okay, normally I'd be expected to be there. I'm part of the family now, but I'm not. You must send me away so I can hide in the field until the third evening. If your father happens to miss me, you should say, David urgently requests me to let him go into the city of Bethlehem, for there is an annual sacrifice there for his entire family. If he should then say, that's fine, then your servant is safe. But if he becomes very angry, be assured that he has decided to harm me. You must be loyal to your servant, for you have made a covenant with your servant in Yahweh's name. If I am guilty, you yourself can kill me. Why bother talk, taking me to your father? So what he's saying is it's very reasonable that he'd be with Saul, his new family, for the holidays. But it's also very reasonable that he would go home to Bethlehem to be with his family for the holidays. Either way, you might be a little disappointed that your son-in-law is not there, but it's also pretty reasonable and accepted and that kind of stuff. If Saul cannot even see, like, that's totally legit to be with mom and dad for the holidays, then there's something wrong here. Jonathan said, far be it from you to suggest this. If it were at all aware of my father had decided to harm you, wouldn't I tell you about it? And David said to Jonathan, who will tell me? If your father, um, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? And Jonathan said to David, come on, let's go out into the field. When the two of them had gone out into the field, Jonathan said to David, Yahweh God of Israel is my witness. I will feel out my father about this time day after tomorrow. If he is favorably inclined toward David, will I not then send word to you and let you know? But if my father intends to do you harm, may Yahweh do to me more, all this and more to Jonathan if I don't let you know and send word to you that you can go safely to your way. May Yahweh be with you as he is with my father. When I am still alive, extend to me the loyalty of Yahweh, or else I will die. Don't ever cut off your loyalty to my family, not even when Yahweh has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth, and called and has called David's enemies account. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, and Jonathan once again took an oath with David because he loved him. In fact, Jonathan loved him as much as he did his own life. And Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is a new moon. This is the covenant they made. They've already made a covenant of friendship and loyalty to each other, that they will never harm each other. But now they've made a covenant. Jonathan has extended the covenant to include his family. He says, Please swear to me that when you become king, you will not kill my kids, my family. Now, the reason he's asking this is because in the ancient world, if a new family became king, replacing the previous family, the first thing to do is exterminate the entire family. And the reason is, is if you're a new family coming to the throne, you probably are coming through some 
suspect legal way or even some violent coup kind of a way. And there's always biological blood that can claim a more rightful throne than you can. And so this is protecting you. Now, granted, Israel doesn't have, this is their first king, so they have no tradition. However, they're still a product of their culture, just like we are. And this is the tradition of all kings around them. So Jonathan says, please just swear to me that you will not wipe out my family for the sake of securing your interests. And the implication is if, if God has really truly anointed you, then you don't need to do that. Yahweh will secure your throne. And David agrees. And he enters into a second amendment, so to speak, on the covenant that he made with each other to extend it to all the relatives of Jonathan and not just Jonathan himself. So Jonathan said, verse 18, Tomorrow is a new moon, and you will be missed, for you, your seat will be empty. On the third day you should go down quickly and come to the place where you hid yourself this day that it all started. Stay near the, the stone easel, and I will shoot three arrows near it, as though I were shooting it at a target. And when I send a boy after them, I will say, Go and find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, at the arrows are on this side of you. Get them, and then come back. For surely as Yahweh lives, you will be safe. There will be no problem. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on the other side of you, get away. For in that case, Yahweh has sent you away. With regard to the matter that you and I have discussed, Yahweh is the witness between us forever. So David hid in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat the meal. And the king sat down in a usual place by the wall with Jonathan opposite of him and Abner at his side. But David's place was vacant. However, Saul said nothing about it that day, for he thought something has happened to make him ceremonially unclean. Yes, be, he must be unclean. So, so David's not there, but Saul's just thinking, oh, he's ceremonially unclean. Now, the ceremony unclean would probably only last for about a day, in most cases. Usually the only thing that would defile you longer is if you fought in battle, which he would know that David has not been in a recent battle, or if you've touched a dead corpse bearing your loved ones, and he would know that David hasn't done that recently. Other than that, everything is usually just an hours or a day. So he expects him to be there the next day. But the next morning of the second day of the new moon, David's place was still vacant. So Saul said to his son, Jonathan, why has Jesse's son not come to the meal yesterday or today? Now notice he doesn't even call him David. He can't even say the name David. So he's referred to him as Jesse's son. But he also may use that phrase as in to demean David because Jesse is not a wealthy family and he has no status in the culture. Saul came from a wealthy family. And so he's saying basically that poor boy who doesn't really have any social ranking. And I don't want to say his name because I hate him. John's replied to Saul, David urgently requests that he be allowed to go to Bethlehem. He said, permit me to go, for we are having a family sacrifice in the city, and my brother urged me to be there. So now, if I have found favor with you, let me go to see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Saul became very angry with Jonathan. And he said to them, you stupid traitor, don't you realize that your own disgrace, don't I realize that to your own disgrace, to the disgrace of your mother's nakedness, and to have chosen the son Jesse? For as long as this son Jesse is alive on earth, you and your kingdom will not be established. Now send some men and bring him to me, for he is good as dead. In the Hebrew, 
he gets really angry. And basically, the Hebrew, he says, you stupid SOB, in a very harsh kind of a way. And then he refers to the mother's nakedness, basically calling her a prostitute who slept with everybody, and you're probably the son of that kind of a prostitute. That's really messed up to call your son that. So he's basically called his son an illegitimate child, and his mother's a prostitute in the most graphic, disgusting, harsh language you could possibly think of. And then he says, you stupid idiot, don't you know that you have sided with David and you become friends with him, basically breaking off loyalty with my family, which proves all the more that you're an SOB. And then, not only that, you're bringing David in, your tra- you're, you're, you're losing your own kingdom. You're giving it all up. David's going to destroy you. You turn against me. I hate you, basically. And you better bring David to me dead. And then he says, as good as dead. But that's not strong enough. Basically, it's not like he might, he's good as dead. He's saying he is basically dead in my eyes right now. And I, the way I see him now is the way that I want to make him. Not only would this be incredibly shocking, devastating for your father to talk to you this way, but then to have it happen publicly in front of everybody... And not only that, Jonathan's kind of like the equivalent of a vice president, so to speak, of the entire nation. And this is happening in front of all of Congress and your family. And you're a grown man and your dad's talking to you this way. And I can't imagine how devastating this would be for Jonathan to really think that his dad just took an oath. And maybe he's just a little angry sometimes. And now at this point it's so obvious that something's wrong with my dad. And I really have no place with him anymore. And that would be a hard thing to accept. So Jonathan responded to his father, Saul, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul threw his spirit, Jonathan, in order to strike him down. So Jonathan was convinced that his father decided to kill David. And Jonathan got up from the table in rage. And he did not eat any food on the second day of the new moon. And he was upset that his father humiliated David. Now he's trying to kill his own son which he's already done before. But now he literally, physically tried to kill him. The next morning, Jonathan, along with a young servant, went out to the field to meet David. And he said to the servant, Run and find the arrows that I have about to shoot. As the servant ran, Jonathan shot the arrow behind, behind, beyond him. You've got to trust your master big time. He says, Go hunt the arrows down that I'm about ready to shoot. And then he goes running, <laughs> and he starts shooting the arrows. Like, man, he must be a great archer. As the servant ran, Jonathan shot the arrow beyond, beyond him. And when the servant came to the place where Jonathan had shot the arrow, Jonathan called out to the servant, Isn't the arrow further beyond to the servant, to you? Jonathan called out to the servant, Hurry, go faster, don't delay. And Jonathan's servant retrieved the arrow and came back to his master. Now the servant did not understand any of these words. She's coming running around shooting arrows at me and trying to catch him. Only Jonathan and David knew what was going on. Then Jonathan gave his equipment to the servant who was with him, and he said to him, Go, take these things back to the city. He shot three arrows. That was a short practice. When the servant had left, David got up from beside the mound, knelt with his face to the ground, and bowed three times. Then they kissed each other, and they both wept, especially David. And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for the two of us have sworn together in the name of Yahweh, saying, Yahweh will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. 
And he's going to basically, for the next 15 to 20 years, go on the run from this point on. Then David got up and left while Jonathan went back to the city. 